Thank you very much. Good evening. It's really great to see you this evening. Would you please also welcome my fellow preachers who will preach far more eloquently than I, Jill and Liz, tonight. Would you welcome them? Well, it's already been great to be here at Spring Harvest this year. We've actually, as a team, been talking about you, and uh, we've decided we quite like you, so well done. It's really great to be together. And I was saying at the Bible reading, during the Bible reading this morning, that as someone who preaches, I am interested by some of the comments that people make after uh, I have preached. In fact, one of these days I'm going to write a book, a collection of those uh, comments. Um, I suppose my most memorable, uh, I've talked about it before, is the lady who came up to me, actually not here in America, and she said, can I ask you a, a, a personal question? And I said, I sense you're about to, so go ahead. And she said, can I ask, have you ever had a stroke? And I was a bit taken aback. I said, no, why do you ask? And she said, well, I've just noticed that when you smile, only one side of your face goes up. <laughs> I'll stop looking now. Just, just, just. And I, I was so tempted. I, I really wanted to say, I'm, I'm just seriously ugly, darling. What's your excuse? But I did not for how wrong that would be. Some don't wait until the preacher's finished. D.L. Moody actually received an anonymous letter while he was preaching. Don't even think about it. <laughs> uh, somebody wrote a little note, the greeter, the usher came up and put it on the pulpit while he was speaking. He opened it, he just said one word, fool. And Moody stopped preaching. He said, I've just received the strangest letter. He said, I often get letters from people who write the letter but don't sign their name. <laughs> this is the first one I've got where they forgot to write the letter and just sign their name. And I suppose really my all-time favorite happened just a few weeks ago. I was in Belgium speaking. A Dutch lady came up to me. She said, in Holland, we say what we think. If we think you're ugly, we say you're ugly. I said, oh, I said, no one's ever said anything like that to me. She said, so, you've never been to Holland then? <laughs> you see, she was a straight talker. And as we come to this story and as we come to God's Word tonight, I am so glad and grateful that the Bible tells us the story straightly. It is possible, if we're not careful, to look at Bible characters and somehow airbrush them and look at them in rosier terms than we should. We saw this morning that wonderfully, looking at Abraham in the, in the Bible reading, that his failures of Genesis are not mentioned or celebrated in Hebrews. But I'm not talking about that. If we're not careful, we can airbrush the stories. We can, we can applaud the tender-hearted Samuel who heard the whisper of God in 1 Samuel 3 and quickly cough and rush on when he 
hacks Agag into little pieces in 1 Samuel 15. We celebrate the Moses who pushed into the holy presence of God in Exodus chapter 20, but we forget the murderer, Moses, of Exodus chapter 2. And there's a danger that we can airbrush this story as we, as we turn to it in Esther chapters 2 and 3. And if you've got a Bible uh, with you tonight, keep your Bible open, please, as we look at this. There's a danger of airbrushing the story of conspiracy. You see, as we already heard last night from Russell, this is a very raw, difficult story. Uh, it's, it's harsh. Uh, Esther's initial role was effectively that of a sex slave. And it amazes me how the commentators, some of them, in, they cough with embarrassment. One commentator says of this, it was a strange position, surely, for a Jewish maiden to occupy. Some even try to make out that it wasn't really about sex at all. It's more about a, a beauty contest. No, this story is very gritty. It's raw, and it is highly erotic. It is loaded with sensual uh, implications. This term that is repeated uh, four times in the book, going to, is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. There is a nudge, nudge, wink, wink edge to this story as this this woman is taken against her will. She wins the favor of the chief trafficker. She marries a, uh, uh, she enters into a marriage with a worshiper of Zoroaster. This is a hard-hitting story. And Russell told us how Martin Luther didn't really like it. In fact, uh, Luther said, I am so great an enemy of this book. It has too many heathen unnaturalities. None of the early church fathers wrote a commentary about the book of Esther. In fact, there was not a commentary produced in the Christian church on this book until the ninth century. You see, let's not airbrush it. It's messy, it's ugly, it's awkward. And yet, in the midst of the ugliness, there is such beauty here too. Let's reacquaint ourselves with the two principal heroines and the villain. First of all, as we've heard, there's Esther. And she is gorgeous. The Hebrew text emphasizes her great beauty. But her life is messed up in a number of areas. Every man that she knows seems to do a lot of talking, a lot of, a lot of commanding. Even cousin Mordecai says, keep quiet about your Jewishness, and then she marries this king who barks, come to bed now when I say so. Xerxes was a failed warrior. Historians tell us that he returned from a four-year campaign, a failed campaign in Greece. This failed warrior liked to snap his fingers, and the rabbis used to teach that women were expected to appear before him stark naked, packaged flesh for his consumption. We've already seen, haven't we, that this is a story of sexual exploitation. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there were 400 concubines. One commentator says a woman was simply a number until she received an identity of sorts by titillating the jaded monarch's fancy. And it's a highly messy situation religiously as this young woman enters into a marriage that is condemned in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, one that Ezra and Nehemiah campaigned against. 
This is Esther. And then there's Mordecai. He's mentioned 58 times in the book. Eight times he's described as a Jew. Uh, Most likely elderly, somewhere around 80, depending on how you interpret the genealogies. Probably a very clever man. The rabbis had a story that said that he he actually uh, understood as many as 70 languages, which perhaps is why he overheard the whispered conspiracy. He's definitely a power broker. It says uh, five times in the book of Esther that he was sitting at the king's gate. In, ancient, in the ancient Near East, the gate was not simply a, a gatehouse. It was a complex of buildings like a, a huge county courthouse. In fact, just 30 years ago, excavation took place and they discovered a gatehouse uh, some uh, 90 meters from the palace that was 13,000 square feet. And so here is this man, this man who was probably a, a high uh, official and an appointed person who's got great, uh, great demands and responsibilities. This is Mordecai. And then there's the villain of the piece, Haman, described four times simply as the enemy of the Jews. Whenever the story is told today, the Jewish people hiss whenever his name is mentioned. Let us have a time of hissing even in this place. That wasn't terribly frightful, really. That was a sort of a British sort of hiss, sort of. And his name was Haman. I'm slightly scared myself now. The architect of this genocidal conspiracy. As we look at this conspiracy, my brothers and sisters, as we pray for the persecuted church, we remind ourselves, don't we, that the Jewish people have too many times lived on the edge of possible obliteration. And in the last great world war. There was no Esther. There was no Mordecai, and so six million perished. And so for the Jewish people, this is no folklore tale. This sits right at the heart of the psyche of a people who have so often been under threat. So what do we learn from this story? Well, the first thing as we consider this conspiracy is that every one of us tonight are called to care and take responsibility. We're all called to care and take responsibility. Mordecai takes action as a family member. Chapter 2, verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. He sees a need and he takes action. He sees a need and he takes action as a citizen, uncovering and reporting the conspiracy assassination plot. It seems to me that there is a crisis in our culture right now, a desperate need for us to rediscover responsibility. I travel around uh, quite a bit and um, occasionally get to stay in hotels. And a few, just about six weeks ago actually, I had a really quite unfortunate uh, situation happen in a hotel here in the UK. I, I, I won't say where it was in case you come from Birmingham. And I, uh, I was staying in this hotel and about 
at about five o'clock in the morning, suddenly a party started in the room next door. Some chaps had been out in the city for a, uh, a night of uh, all-night sharing, and they, uh, they came back somewhat lubricated, and uh, they started to continue their party in the room next to me. Now, I know that you know that that, that wouldn't have bothered me at all. I mean, I, it, it's 5 a.m., so uh, I'd already been up, um, you know, reading Leviticus for two hours at that point. So, in fact, uh, I appreciated the announcement tonight because I was a little worried that the sound of my tambourine playing might disturb the chaps next door, quite frankly. So I thought I'd better just call the front desk, you know, because there's family staying here. And this party was rather loud. And I said, hello. Um, I said, I just want to let you know there's a party going on next door. And the, uh, the guy on reception, age nine, he said... Um, he, he said, uh, he said, it's the first time you've called to complain about it. I said, well, that would be because it's only just started. I'm good, but not that good at complaining in advance, really. He said, are you sure the noise is not coming from your room? Yeah, right. I am such a shadow. I'm having a one-man party at five o'clock in the morning, and then I phone you to complain about myself. <laughs> Hello? He just didn't want to take responsibility, and the party continued. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, I did say. Helen Keller said, science may have found a cure for most evils, but it has found no remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings. Spring Harvest is about us living beautifully and embracing responsibility. Perhaps that feels overwhelming. I was heartened just earlier today to read the words of Mother Teresa. He said, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I can only love one person at a time, just one, one, one. Maybe if I hadn't picked up one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. And she said, the same goes for you in your family, your church, your community. Just begin, one, one, one. But not only is this responsible action but the text seems to let us know that this is action driven by kindness. In the seventh verse of the second chapter, it repeats twice, twice in one verse, that Mordecai had adopted his cousin because her parents had died. And then in verse 11, we see him sitting at the gate, and then every day he walks back and forth near the courtyard to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. You see, this man doesn't just take action, but he cares. He is kind. I saw the power of prophetic kindness again recently as a result of another hotel experience. We checked in. I was doing a little book tour with a man called Graham Seed, a giant of a man with a giant heart, a converted football hooligan, an amazing man who spent, uh, I think, a year of his life living on a park bench, and some chaps from YWAM, YWAM came by and told him about Jesus, and he told them to, to go away. 
I paraphrase. And to cut a long story short, he became a Christian. He's now one of the most loving, gracious people you could ever meet. And we, we were doing this book tour together, and we checked into this, this hotel, this time in Manchester, and, uh, and uh, the receptionist said, do you want an upgrade? Ten quid. I said, what do you get as an upgrade? And he said, Windows. Righto then. We feel a bit fed up. Do you, ever, do you ever have those days when you just feel a bit fed up? You know, and we came out, there was a parking ticket on the car, and, you know, no windows in the room, not the car. And we thought, oh, let's just go and have a pizza. Now, we were not, we were not wearing or doing anything that would immediately identify us as Christians. We went to Pizza Hut. We ordered a pizza. We, uh, I hope you won't be offended. We didn't, we didn't give thanks for the food. No hymns were sung. We didn't have any fish badges in our lapels. And it being winter, we weren't even wearing sandals. There was nothing to overtly identify us as Christians. We just nattered and nattered to the waitress. And at the end, she bought us the bill. And she said this. She said, what are you doing now then, lads? Are you going to go shopping? And I just said, no, we're, we're here in Manchester for an event. She said, is it about God? Is it about God? And I'm looking at this woman thinking, waitress person, prophetess of the Lord. I said, yeah. How did you know? She said, oh, you were both kind to me. She said, I thought it probably had something to do with God. She said, I get a lot of abuse in here. Kindness can be prophetic. I hear a lot of talk about revival these days, and as a card-carrying, flag-waving charismatic, I've spent a lot of my life looking for revival. And to be honest with you, just between me and you, I've got a confession to make. In fact, it's just between me and you. Lean forward a bit. Lean forward a bit. Some of you are saying, I will not lean forward. <laughs> it's the thin end of the wedge of religious freedom eradication. I will adopt the position. Lean, get over it. Lean forward. <laughs> Just between me and you, whatever revival is, I think it would probably be fantastic if it came, but I'm fed up with living on the brink. It's just around the corner. We're on the edge. We sense a breakthrough. The clouds are parting. The rain is coming. I'm 54 years of age this year. And I've stood on the brink for 35 years. And I'm fed up with it. Can't believe I just said this. But I tell you what, whatever that is, if it comes, great. But if we could just have a revival of kindness. I told this story a lot, forgive me if you've heard it, but we had a fella come to our church, nasty bloke. About six foot eight with muscles in places where I don't have places. So nasty. Someone told him, they said, you're so nasty, you need to go to church. Very helpful evangelistic strategy. (laughs) 
Now, if you like to be offended in church, a moment is coming now, so don't miss it. Get, I don't want you to... Get, are you, if you're one of those people who go, right, I wonder if that Vicky Beeching is going to sing my favourite song or not. If you're like one of those types, don't miss this moment because it's a cracker. This fella had his life message tattooed on his knuckles. On this hand, it said, you. And on this hand was another word beginning with F and not Philippians. And he comes along to our church and he's standing at the back, glowering, hating it. And little Marge... I love little Marge. She always sits over on my left. She's about 250 years old. She's about three foot six. And she goes up to this bloke, standing there. And she looks up at him in the distance. And she said, I don't believe we've met. He burst into tears. He burst into tears. Nobody, nobody had talked to him for quite a while with such kindness. He became a Christian. But he's coming to our church and he's got that on his knuckles. And it was all right until he started to raise his hands during the worship. <laughs> Woo! He finally got them. No one jumped on him. We, he finally said, I want to get rid of this. This is not my life message anymore. The night he was baptized, he stood in the baptismal tank with his hands in plastic bags, recovering from the surgery. And he held up his hands. And he said, now the outside matches the inside. But it all started with little Marge. Kindness. And Mordecai takes action and it's birthed in kindness. Is there a situation in our lives where kindness has become a casualty? Secondly, secondly, not only are we called to care and take responsibility, but we're called to goodness for goodness sake. We're called to goodness for goodness sake. Because you see, Mordecai takes this brave step, and then chapter 3 when the Jews would read it, they surely had a sharp intake of breath because it should say, and the king recognized Mordecai's contribution and promoted him instead. King Xerxes, verse 1, honored Haman. <laughs> Bless your hearts. Some of you have just been waiting for that little moment, haven't you? You've been... <laughs> How would it feel? How would it feel to be Mordecai? And you've saved the king's life, and then this man, Haman, is elevated. <laughs> how glad I am that I suggested that earlier. Sometimes 
you just have to do good for no apparent immediate reward. I mean, let's be ever so honest. It's rather luscious, isn't it, when you do something good and people actually notice. You know, it's a little it's delicious, that. It's like eating Belgian chocolate, fairly traded. <laughs> but there are times when we just have to invest in goodness because it's right to invest in goodness. You know, standing up here is relatively relatively a relaxed, easy thing for me to enjoy. It's a great privilege to do this. I have a greater challenge in my life where I have a speaking opportunity that's far more challenging than this. See, communicating with you, a lovely receptive group, this is, this is easy compared to what happens when my mum phones. And I'm glad you laughed, and I wanted you to, but now let me tell you something that I know you won't laugh at. See, my mum is in the first or maybe second stages of Alzheimer's, which is an emotional exile. It's a strange land of unfamiliar territory. And when she calls me, and we have this conversation where she says the same thing, over and over and over and over and over and over again. And everything in me, my brothers and sisters, wants to just say, Mum, you just said that. Please don't tell me again. Please don't ask me the same question again. But my mum doesn't want me to tell her that she just said the same thing. My brother lives in South Africa, so my wife and I, we are the closest thing she has to security and stability. My mum wants me to put my arm round her when I see her next week and tell her that I love her. And it's easier to have a conversation with her, or rather with you, than it is to walk through that. And I know as I look out into your eyes tonight, some of you in a situation, some of you are full-time caring, where my little situation, yours is magnified many times. You know what? I kind of just want to stand up here tonight and say, Keep investing in goodness for goodness sake. And I want to say to you, well done. I want to run around the tent and come knock on the chalet door and say to those of you that are caring and those of you that just keep going, well done. Keep going. And yes, I know that it's hard work and I know that sometimes you don't feel like it. But keep going. We all need encouragement. Preachers need encouragement. It's nice when people come up and say, thanks for the talk. You know, some preachers deny that they need encouragement. You know, they do that, you know, oh, no, 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 don't encourage me. I heard of one preacher, a lady came up to him and 
She said, thanks for the sermon. It was good. He said, no, 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 madam. No, no. Look up. It was the Lord. She said, well, actually, it weren't that good. <laughs> we need encouragement. I need encouragement. We can get under the tyranny of the aughts. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. We need encouragement. I'm, the, I'm a rubbish golfer. I hate golf. I don't have a swing. I have a spasm. It's horrid. <laughs> and I was out playing golf with my friend Darry Northrup. He's good at everything. I'm so pleased. <laughs> and I hit the ball straight into the lake. And he slapped me on the back. He said, well done, Lucas. Great shot. I said, what do you mean? What do you mean, well done? I said, I just hit the ball into the water. He said, Jeff, you just hit the ball. <laughs> to some of us tonight, I want to say, well done, keep going. Keep going when you don't feel like it because your emotions are not the barometer of your spirituality. Thirdly and lastly, we are called to be wise as well as distinctive. I found this about two hours ago. It's probably got nothing to do with anything, but I just thought it was cute, really. <laughs> We're called to be wise as well as distinctive. Now, we are called to live distinctively. Uh, Mordecai uh, refused to bow down. We're going to dis dis discuss that in three or four minutes here before we conclude. We are called to be different. The story is told of a policeman who was seeking promotion to sergeant and was taking a test paper. And there was a part of the exam where he had to identify decision-making and ordering priorities. And the question read like this. You're driving along a road in your patrol car. Suddenly, a car coming from the other direction veers across the road and smashes into another car. As you approach the first car, you notice the wife of the police inspector who's in charge of your station is driving it. There's a very strong smell of alcohol coming from her car. You look into the other car and notice that a well-known local criminal and thief who's jumped bail and is on the run is driving that car. He's sitting there looking dazed. In the back of his car are boxes of uh, DVD players. And just then a tanker trying to avoid the two cars veers off the road and plows into some shop fronts. The tanker driver, distraught, jumps out of the cab and comes running towards you yelling, fire, fire, do something, officer. And then you notice that the words toxic waste, high explosive, are marked on the side of the tanker. Just then a gang of 25 large shops who just happen to be passing by begin looting the shop, which has now caught fire. Please list your priorities and decisions. <laughs> and the policeman taking the paper gave this answer. Priority and decision number one, remove uniform and mingle with crowd. <laughs> we are called to be distinctive, but listen. Sometimes we're distinctive, but we don't always have a great deal of wisdom. Why didn't Mordecai bow? Let me make something clear. It is highly possible that it was right and proper that he did not bow, although there are many examples of Jews in 
Old Testament times, bowing to each other, bowing to foreign kings. This was not a Daniel-type situation. The Jews, in their commentary on Esther, have been willing to have the conversation about the possibility that Mordecai might have been making a fuss when he shouldn't have done. In fact, uh, one paraphrase of the Old Testament written in Aramaic suggests that Mordecai might have even had some ancient pride that was creeping in to this situation. I'm not saying that Mordecai was wrong. What I am saying is that the Jewish people themselves, looking at this story, have been willing to acknowledge the possibility that he might have been making a poor call, because actually it was that refusal that put the Jewish people in jeopardy, and then one that had to be ultimately sorted out. The point is this. Let's be distinctive, but let's be wise. Let's listen. Let's be careful about our tone. When I became a Christian, my dad didn't want to have anything to do with my Christianity. And I tried everything to get him to become a Christian. Hello, Dad. I am a Christian. You, sadly, are not. You are lost forever. Have a nice day. (laughs) I knew that my dad was a prisoner of war in the last war, but he didn't say much about it. I knew that he escaped. And then about six weeks ago, my world exploded. My dad died 13 years ago. But six weeks ago, I discovered a piece of paper in a box. It was a letter from the Red Cross informing my grandparents that my dad had been captured and the name of the prison camp where he was held. And suddenly I thought, Google. I typed in the name of the camp And my dad's world exploded in front of me. I heard about the, I read about the rations. I saw photographs of prison prisoners in chains. I realized that he was just five miles from Auschwitz. I discovered that he marched 600 miles across Germany in a death march in the coldest winter in a hundred years. And as I was parroting my little cliches to him about suffering, I thought that I was showing him grace. But actually, with his quiet smile, he was showing me grace. And it took 20 years, perhaps by which time I'd learned to shut up, before my dad became a Christian and then died shortly afterwards. Are we distinctive and wise with it? Has kindness become a casualty? Will we keep going in goodness for goodness sake? Will we be distinctive and wise with it? Surely, as we embrace these attitudes and actions and allow God's Spirit to shape and change our character, truly then, beautiful living will be the result and Jesus will be seen to be the most beautiful one of them all.